0: So uh, like I said we're going to talk about knowing God through suffering uh, and uh, you can I, I ask you to turn your Bibles to Philippians three. Um, I'm going to read the first ten verses eleven verses sorry Philippians 3: one to 11 finally my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evil doers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh for we are the circumcision. Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So it's important to understand where Paul's coming from here. Paul's writing from a prison. He's been imprisoned. He's been taken out of his ability to be in the ministry that he loves, with the people that he loves and cares for. Um, he is stuck. And I mean, Paul's as big a go-getter as has ever walked the face of the earth. So for somebody who wants to be moving and mobilizing people so much for the sake of the gospel to be stuck in prison with an inability to be about that, this is a tough spot for him. Um, and so the question then comes, you know, like, uh, where do you work from then? You know, like, where does your strength come from in that spot? And Paul right up says you've got to watch out for people who claim to be about Christ but are not about Christ who get confidence from the wrong place. Because Paul says that the glory in Christ Jesus that he has, the Spirit of God that's in him, the chosen work that he was committed to, right? He is the circumcision, right? He is led by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus that he has. These are the reasons for his confidence. Verse 4. So I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So Paul says, we don't put confidence in the flesh. We trust in the spiritual confidence that God gives us through Christ. But if anybody's going to be confident about who they are just as a person, it's going to be me. right? And by me, I mean him. Um, verse 4, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Right? You think you've got a good resume, check out my resume. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That means he comes from righteous heritage. He has parents who loved the Lord and feared the law and did what it said. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, so he's one of God's chosen people right? of the tribe of Benjamin. So he's one of the two tribes that held out longer than the nasty ten tribes who, you know, were taken off in the captivity long before Judah was. Benjamin is is known as a warrior nation as well, and um, this is Paul's this is Paul's stock. He is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Right, so just by the fact that he was born where he was, he's already probably better than you, right? That's the idea. But now he hasn't even gotten to his training yet because the training that he has is insane, right? As to the law, when it comes to knowing the Torah, I'm a Pharisee. Right? I mean, Paul was an actual like he studied rabbinically his entire life. This means that he would have memorized the first five books of the Bible. It means that he could talk about them and argue them like he was talking to you know uh to you about the 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 weather he this was a part of who he was. He could speak about prophets he could talk about there were six hundred and fourteen laws added to the Old Testament Torah law, and he could recite all those too and tell you where you were doing them wrong um, so at, when it comes to training, he's got the training. What about your heart, Paul? I bet your heart's not as big as mine. Well, next verse. As to zeal, I was persecuted the church. How many how many how many other people do you know like like stopped teaching rabbinically in order to take the time to keep God's church pure from these crazy Christians, right? Who were saying that Jesus rose from the dead. So when it comes to passion, don't question my passion. I'm really passionate about a strict orthodox interpretation of the Torah and the way that it works should work itself out in the people of God. So I've got you when it comes to being born, I've got you when it comes to training, I've got you when it comes to passion. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Ah, Paul! I bet I can find somebody who knows that you're a scoundrel. I bet you can't. All right? I, when it comes to the way that I lived and kept the law, there's nobody that can bring a charge against me. That's what blameless means. All right? So all of these things is sort of like, wow. You know, if you're a Jew and a conservative Jew in that setting, and you see this guy, this guy Paul, and the way that he's living, been Saul, then you see the way that he's living is sort of like. Oh man, who's your hero young man? Saul. He is zealous for the Lord, his training is impeccable. Like he is a superhero in in rabbinical uh areas and pharisaical teaching. Like this is he is cream of the crop. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my lord for his sake i have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that i may gain christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in christ the righteousness from god that depends on faith right so paul takes this resume that he has right? And he throws it in the trash. He takes the heritage that he comes from and he counts it as nothing. He takes all of the great life that he lived, keeping and doing all the right things for all the right reasons, right? And he says all of that is nothing. And then he takes everything else that isn't included in all of that pedigree and all of that, all of that acclaim and all of that fame, all of that zeal. He takes all the rest of it then and also throws that away. Not because it's worthless. Notice, Paul never says that those things themselves are worthless. He says in comparison to something better, they don't have worth. Because Paul's experience here, in his life here, what he has engaged and felt and known in this realm, he says is nothing to be compared with what I have engaged and felt and known in this realm. That when it comes to knowing God, when it comes to what he calls the surpassing worth of knowing God, when I look at these two things, all that other junk that I could point to, all that other stuff that I could say about myself, all the other experiences that I've had, those things in comparison pale and lose value in order for the esteem of what it is to know God. Now the question is, is Paul, how have you gotten to know God? What's the answer? Through those experiences. This is important because a lot of times you'll hear this passage preached and what it essentially you're told is that you and your story don't matter, that knowing God matters. So take all that junk, throw it away, and then get to know God. I heard that a lot going up. That is some of the biggest, I'd I like to curse right now, but I'm not going to. That is some of the worst teaching that you can engage. You get to know God through that experience. It is a comparative system, right? So knowing God, knowing God is the ultimate value, right? It is more value than anything else that you want to throw at it. But when it comes to how do you get to know God, how, God meets you where you are. God orchestrates and engages and works in the situations in your life. That's how, so there is a deep value to you. There is deep value to you and your story. To say, your story doesn't matter, what you're going through, that, you just let it, let it slide away, you know, and then get to know God. How are you going to get to know God without knowing God from where you are? What are you going to do, read a book? Has that ever helped you? You know what I mean? I mean, really helped you. Of course it helps, but like, does that does that heal your hurt? No, God does. Right? And so God, he, 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 we know him through those experiences. Comparatively speaking, if we're going to go about this with me knowing a lot about who I am and all of my great work, self-actualizing myself through my experiences, that is nothing. That is trash, Paul says, compared to knowing God through the experiences. The surpassing worth of knowing God and the way you get to know God is through what Paul's about to walk us into. The point of knowing God, notice in verse 9, is the righteousness of God. At the point of knowing God, the idea of the surpassing worth of Christ, is so that you possess a righteousness, so that you possess a right standing, a right relationship with God, whereby you're engaging him all the time. This is Paul's idea here, is that there's never a time when you're not in the presence of the Lord, that, that your whole life is contained within the bubble of, of the grace, mercy, and presence of Jesus. like that, that That's where you are. That's the water in which you swim. much the air that you breathe. That's his whole idea about what life is, which means the greatest things that happen to you are for the purpose of knowing God, and the worst things that happen to you are for the purpose of knowing God. When it comes down to it, the purpose of suffering is about knowing God more. So this, this knowledge of God is for the purpose of working a righteousness of God, a righteousness that comes by what? By faith. I'm going to end on that, so I'm not going to get there yet. Verse 10, and this is where we're going to focus. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All right, I'm going to read it again. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There are two words in Greek for know. The one word is oida, and the one word is gnosko. Let me hear you say oida. Oida. Oida means to know, like, facts, right? I am wearing a striped shirt, right? That is a fact. Jake is cool. That is a fact, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there are, this is oida, this is oida, right? Actually, I had some more gnosko, because I had to experience you to know that you're cool, um, right? Uh, so, oida is facts, the other word is gnosko, let me hear you say gnosko, gnosko, that's experience, right? That, that's an experiential thing, that's an experiential thing. So, uh you know, whereas Jay is wearing a striped shirt, that is knowledge, right? Um, but me saying Jake is cool is an experience. I I have experienced Jake and now because of that, I, I know Jake some, right? And, uh, that I may know him. The word know in this situation, in this passage, verses one through 11 is always gnosko. He's not oida at all, right? So you could, you could substitute when we read this, you could substitute the word experience, right? That you could engage, right? So when we talk about the surpassing worth of knowing God, we're talking about the surpassing worth of experiencing God. This is a relational word. It's the idea of flesh-on-flesh contact. It's the idea of communication happening as well, right? I mean, Jake and I could sit there, having never met before, and stare at each other for an hour, get up 60 minutes later and walk away. I cannot say anything about him, right? Other than that, you know, he seems to dress cool, so he might be cool. Right Now I'm making judgment statements based on his outward appearance. And this is a great way to have a relationship, right? But isn't this what we do with God? Right? We sit distant. He sits in his chair. We sit in our chair. We look at him. We assume he's looking at us. And we walk away with judgments about him. I sit there not talking to him. He sits there, I think, not talking to me. My heart is in a desperately painful situation. I assume he's not saying anything because I'm not saying anything to him. I get up and walk away and say, God doesn't care. I've just tried to oida God. You can't oida God. All right? Knowing facts about God is, uh, I mean, it just, it just doesn't work. Knowing about God and knowing God are two completely different things. And don't get me wrong, you can know facts about God, but until that hits your heart, until that becomes something here, it is just dead theology. All right? it, is just, it is just dead facts. By the way, if you didn't read my latest blog post on the occult about a better way to read the Bible, you should go there and read it. It's good stuff. All right. Um, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. All right. so look what Paul goes after. What is it that Paul wants to experience? I mean, do you note it? What's the craziest thing Jesus did? Well, he was dead and then not anymore. And now he lives forever. So Paul doesn't even want to experience, like, his own resurrection. Paul wants to experience Christ's resurrection. Lazarus rose from the dead, but then Lazarus died again. Right? Paul doesn't want that. Paul wants the power of Christ's resurrection. Right? So he wants his, I want that power. That's a pretty full experience. To walk in that, to engage that, to know God like that. That's what Paul's going after here. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Right? And so far, we're like, yeah, woo, and share his sufferings. So Paul wants to know the power of his resurrection. Yes, count me in and share in his sufferings. Hang on, <laughs> right? Because the sufferings of Christ are vast and full. I mean, our mind automatically goes to the cross, and well, it should, don't get me wrong. But if you think about the life of Jesus, well, there, there's a significant amount of suffering contained in that situation too. I mean, there's rejection, there's betrayal, right? there's being missed and missed, misunderstood, there's being left behind, there's being, really bringing something strong to the table that's really beautiful, and people saying, no, I don't want that. You know, there's all kinds of things that Jesus himself, in his own experience, relationally suffered. The book of Hebrews goes so far as to say that he experienced everything that we experience. That that he was tempted in every way, just like we are. So if you're tempted to despair, Jesus I I know how you feel. As a human, I know how you feel. Like as a person, I know how you feel. Yeah, sure, God knows how we feel. He's God. Huh? Jesus as a as a person, as a human, knows what it's like for despair to want to destroy you. Right? Jesus as a human knows what it's like to be betrayed by someone. Jesus knows what it's like to be missed and misunderstood. He he's, he can actually say, I know how you feel, not just because God knows everything, but because he was real. I mean, he was human. He was one of us. He's a, he was a person. And that personhood obviously took on its most frail form on the cross. And all of those things came together in one situation and one experience. Right, to the point of him crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So taking that suffering all the way to its furthest degree. I mean Jesus, rejection on the cross, yep. Betrayal to the cross, yep. Right? I mean the being misunderstood, remember the thieves and the discussion they had about him? Yep. The need to forgive when he's gonna want to hold offense, that's there. I mean it's it's all just think about that the the depth and the emotion and the pain that he's going through. And this Paul says that I might share in his sufferings. Why does Paul say that? Paul says that because he actually believes that, that the surpassing worth of knowing God is more and bigger and better than anything else. Which means that if Jesus suffered, then I want to suffer too. Not in a masochistic way. Is that right? Masochistic or say which way? Masochistic, thank you. I always get this mixed up. Not not in a masochistic way, but in a I want to know Christ so deeply. Christ suffered so deeply. There is something about the way in which Jesus suffered that opens up doors for me of knowing him and engaging him that I could otherwise never know and, and never experience. And while it takes me through and to a cross very possibly, I go there because I want to know Christ. And I go there, how? By faith. Why? Because Jesus didn't stay dead. Right. There is still the initial phrase, the power of his resurrection, the sharing in his sufferings. One of the great concerns in the American church today, I think, is a complete missing of the resurrection of Jesus. Like th- This is our greatest and grandest hope, and his resurrection is yours. That's a different sermon. That I might become like him in his death. That's what Paul says. That I might become like him in his death, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So this resurrection idea is a big thing in the mind of, of Paul. Right? And we're going to get there again at the end. But I want to stop and, and focus on this concept of, of suffering and what it means to share with Christ in his sufferings, particularly in our experiences. Because I think that there are some things that we miss when it comes to the way that we would experience suffering. Um, And what it means for us to walk in that together. So I just have, I think I got like four things for you or something. First, I think it's very important to understand that humans were not formed with the capacity to process pain, loss, grief, or disappointment. You were not made, you don't have that part. When God made the world, and he put Adam and Eve in the garden, everything was good, right? I mean, everything was was perfect. Everything was great. He made them with the complete blessing of himself and his presence in and through all things. The spiritual and physical ecosystem of the Garden of Eden was held in perfection and harmony, completely and totally and forever. It was completely good. Two trees in the garden, tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, eat this tree, the tree of life, that's how they lived. Right? Tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat that one. Don't eat that one. Why? Because you're not supposed to know evil. You and I were not made with the intention to know that. We were made with the intention to know good, which is God himself. But when it comes to the knowledge of evil and pain and death, And how to process all that. That's not there. And it's not like eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil gave them that capacity like the serpent said would happen. The serpent said to them, yeah, God's just trying to hold things back from you. He knows that you'll be like him. Well, we ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And did we become like him? No. We became desperately separated and apart from him. Dead in our trespasses and sins, right? Right? So, what it is that he promised certainly did not come to pass. So, understanding and engaging and knowing how to deal with sin, brokenness, loss, grief, disappointment, situations that you didn't want and didn't ask for, when those things find you, you don't have the capacity to figure that out. I get it. You got a lot of questions. Me too. You know, and there's answers that you want in the midst of deep hurt and pain. Me too. Absolutely. And there are emotions that I feel toward God that I don't know that I'm okay feeling. Yeah, definitely. Me and David. Whoo, here we go. Right? Like the, but when it comes, if I think at some point I'm going to figure this out, or if you think at some point you're going to figure this out, I would question that because I don't think that you have the capacity to figure it out. It's just not there. You weren't built with the spiritual framework to understand and process evil. It's not in there. But the first thing that we do in suffering is we go to God and say, you know, answer my questions. Answer my questions, and I'd like good answers, please. Ask God questions, by all means, definitely. Sit with Him and talk and engage and let Him hold you. Feel what you're going to feel. Ask whatever you want to ask. There's no question so big or so small that God doesn't want to hear it. He cares about you. If you care about it, he cares about it. And so if it's on your heart, it's on his. But what you're, what we are actually seeking usually is not answers to our questions. right? What we're actually seeking in the long run is we just want alleviation from our pain. We just want the hurt to go away. And we think that if I can just rationally understand it, then that'll help somehow. But I've been in situations with people, particularly pastorally, where God did give them some rational explanation as to why what happened happened, and they still weren't okay. Why? Because they didn't hurt here. They hurt here. And so the point that their mind came to rest with it did not stop the emptiness from being here, from the loss of that person, or the grief from going through this situation, or whatever it was. So you might even get all of your answers for the rational way that you want to engage it, but that's not where God's going to be operating. Because God wants your heart. He wants you knowing here. But to be honest with you, my experience is that people don't get the answers to their questions. And either they get upset with God and check out, or they push into him more deeply and find out that their questions were the wrong questions. So, I think that there's a level of grace in understanding this truth, that you were not formed to understand it. So you can let yourself off the hook of trying to do so. Right? Interestingly, those four things that I talked about, pain, loss, grief, disappointment, Interestingly, pain, loss, grief, and disappointment are root experiences for anger. Grief and anger go hand in hand. Um, What I mean by this is that if you, if you're ever feeling angry, or if someone is ever like angry at you, or if you're trying to help someone with their anger, you always need to understand anger is a fruit, not a root. It comes from somewhere. Anger doesn't present as an initial emotion. Anger comes from another experience, and generally speaking that experience is going to be one of four things, pain, loss, grief, or disappointment, particularly unmet goals or blocked goals. These four things will produce anger. So when we feel anger, tracing the anger back to where it comes from is a really helpful thing because anger, if maybe you've noticed, is a very, very loud emotion, right? It's chaotic. If we all right now in this room got really mad at each other all at the same time, it would be chaos right i mean maybe you've experienced that with your family where just everyone's angry at everyone you know like it's it's chaotic you can't operate in that environment what you can do is find out why the anger's there and where the anger came from so the loss grief disappointment right the the pain that's there like tracing it back to that is is really really good because that enables you to see that the anger that you feel is fine, but people oftentimes just tell you to put your anger away or you'll get over it or it be water under the bridge, time heals all wounds, bunch of junk like that. Well, none of those things is actually true. What is true is you're really angry and frankly, you've got a right to be so. Anger's a good, good emotion. Good emotion, anger. You should definitely be, I mean, Romans 12, you are to hate what is evil. Abhor it. You should want to destroy. You should want to wreak destruction on sin and death so badly that, like the the rage that you feel, is completely right. Anger is a very good redemptive emotion. The scriptures simply tell us that when we're going to feel angry, feel it rightly. Don't try and feel anger on your own. Feel anger with God. So be angry, but don't sin. And don't let. Uh, your relationships go with anger in the midst for a long period of time. But if somebody makes you, if you're mad at somebody, all right, just feel it with God. The way you're going to go after it is by trying to see, sitting down with someone, or here's a better way to look at it, sitting down with someone and them saying, I'm angry at you, and you hearing that about you, okay, well, that means I probably caused them pain, I made them feel some kind of loss, I grieved them in some way, or I blocked something they were trying to accomplish. And then you can go after one of those four things instead of just saying, well, just tell me all the things you hate about me. you know. And then they spew on you. We call this venting, right? Or needing a sounding board, um, all of which is just a way to spew our poison and emotionally vomit on one another without ever getting to any kind of a conclusion. God wants things concluded, which is why he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Right? Keep your relational anger short, which means seek it out to its source point. At the source point, now there we can really work. When we're talking about pain, loss, grief, or disappointment. Grief and anger go hand in hand. Um, listen to this. Uh, something Jesus does. This is very helpful when, if you're grieving, right? which I know a lot of you are here. He, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they would accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And they were silent, right? So these these here's this guy who's suffering and like his withered hand, his, his life has been one of suffering in this regard. And the Pharisees just want to use this poor guy with this withered hand and this painful experience for their own ends, just to try and trap him, right? So Jesus knows what's going on. They don't say anything. He just knows it. And he walks up. Uh, he tells the guy with the withered hand, "Come here." And then he turns to them and says, "So, what do you think? Is it lawful for me to do this or not?" And Jesus is talking religious smack here to the uh, to the Pharisees. That's exactly what this is. He is all, he is he is spiritually taunting in this situation. Like, so, what do you say? Should I do this or shouldn't I? And I just I would love to see Jesus' eyes in that situation. Um, and they were silent. Darn right they were. Um, they were silent. And this is why I love to see his eyes. He looked at them with what? I'm sorry, I didn't tell you to turn there. Come on, folks. Um, <laughs> what's the word say? <laughs> he looked at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. All right, did you catch that? Jesus looked at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. And said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And that's just one example. I think you can see Jesus with grief and anger go hand in hand multiple times. You see it with John the Baptist when John the Baptist was beheaded. You can see it with Lazarus when he uh, raises Lazarus from the dead. You can see it there as well. You can see it when he unloads on the Pharisees in Matthew 23 and then turns around and curses a fig tree out of anger and then weeps over the city of Jerusalem. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's all over the place in Jesus. Grief and anger go hand in hand. Are you grieving? Then you're probably angry. Good. Great. Do that. I mean, David rages on God. He, He just, he brings himself in the fullness of what he's feeling God, why are my enemies triumphing over me? Why are you blessing unrighteous people? Right? Why did this person die, and this person lived? Why am I barren, and these people abuse their kids and We can ask these questions all day long, right? Why were you and I born in America, and those poor kids were born in Congo? You know why are we here, and they're not? you know why is the poorest person in 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 uh, America richer than the a uh, poorest person or the richest person in Africa, you know, normal person. So it's, it's this like this strange, convoluted set of situations and instances. And what it brings up in our in our hearts is anger over grief. Like this, this hurts. I am I, I am grieved to my core about this. That presents so oftentimes in anger. Good, it should. It absolutely should. Grief and anger go hand in hand. You trace the anger down. Follow the story. If you are angry, it's because you have lost something, because you are experiencing pain, because you have unmet goals, because there's a relationship that's off, because there's a relationship that's ended. There is some reason in and behind it. Do not try and slough off your anger. The church shames people who get angry, and that needs to stop. Anger is a great way to find out what it is that's actually going on in you. Better yet... Anger is a great way to find out what God is actually trying to teach you and show you and engage you with in the experience, that whatever that experience is that you're having. So it's not to say you have to be angry. I don't hear me saying that. It's just saying, oftentimes it goes hand in hand, and I think that that's a key point. They are root experiences for anger. Thirdly, suffering is not a way to serve others. Suffering is not a way... To serve others. I remember when uh, uh, when Christy was diagnosed uh, with CF. One of the main things that we heard was, you know, well, maybe through her experience and pain with this disease, some people can come to know Jesus. And I remember thinking, I don't care if anybody comes to know Jesus because of this. And I remember thinking, man, I'm a horrible person. Because I think it'd be great for somebody to come to know Jesus. Frankly, I don't care how people come to know Jesus as long as they do, right? I mean, God uses all kinds of creative situations. But to say that this makes this situation okay then, or that I'm supposed to, like, somehow feel better about that, like, you, you gotta be joking. You know, suffering is not a way to serve others. This is how we think of it. We think of it outwardly. We always take this and. I, rarely have I heard the person who's actually suffering say this first. They generally say it reactively to somebody saying it to them, right? But generally what what, what I'll observe is here's this person in this terrible situation, um, and we're together in it, and then this other voice comes, this other voice says, well, there's some good that could come out of this for somebody else, you know? So it's going to be horrible for you, but it's going to be really good for somebody else. So the fact that it's horrible for you, but that it's really good for somebody else, means that then you should feel good about what you're going through. Right, this is a way for you to like serve someone, and I just I think that's absolutely wrong. I think it's absolutely ridiculous, actually. Um, suffering is not a way to serve others by, by listen, one of the main things uh, that um, you can learn in suffering is to not waste your pain. A lot of people waste their pain. Christian cliches waste pain, right? Trying to get get out of the feeling, that wastes the pain as well. Anesthetizing it through an addiction or something like that, that, that's all a wasting of your pain. You are in pain for a reason. You are in grief for a reason. That reason is to know God and God may or may not give you answers. He may or may not show you something. He may or may not give what you think it is that he wants to give. That's really not the point. What the point is, is that you are where you are so you need to be where you are. And I understand that's really hard because it's oftentimes a very painful place. And just like any situation, you want to run from pain. You want to get out of the suffering. Also, completely legitimate. But oftentimes, can you? You know, I mean, do you really have that level of control over this situation? Usually in the things that really get us, we don't have a lot of control over it. And so the fact that the loss has happened or that the pain is there through this situation, that my goals were blocked or that I'm feeling so deeply grieved about something, like the fact that I'm in this place and in this space, me trying to craft some other kind of matrixy environment where I live this idyllic life while having this massive hole in myself, that's just, there's a word for that. We talked about it in James. It's called self-deceived. People who are self-deceived become double-minded double minded people compartmentalize themselves and they become one person over here and another person over here and pretty soon they cannot give love in a whole way because they are not a whole person. And so their relationships fall. Suffering is not a way to serve others. You are not suffering so that God can get something done in somebody else's life because uh, he's got no other options. Right? He's not... in. Inflicting evil upon you, so that good can come to someone else. Now he very well might do that. He very well may take something that's very difficult for someone, and make it something very good. And I think we can all experience. I mean, think about this as, as objectively as you want to, and as distantly removed as possible. I mean, um, I couldn't. Un- I was having a hard time understanding grief soon after Christie was diagnosed. So I read C. S. Lewis's <laughs> Shadowlands. He had a horrible experience about losing his wife to cancer. But man, his his story of and his process of it really helped me with mine. You know, so it's not that God can't; it's that we we try and make this situation uh, out to be the suffering of someone is, is is a way to serve others, and I do not believe that is true. Suffering has one purpose; it is one purpose, and that purpose is to know God. The per- if you say why am I going through this, the answer is because God. Wants you to know him more, or differently, or it's not bad or good, right? Better's the wrong word. It's that he is working something in and through you, that he is shifting things, and friend, things are going to shift, right? I mean, you don't have a lot of control in this situation. So either we lean into the change and we take our tears and our broken hearts and our pain that we didn't know that we could experience like that to God and cast it on him and tell him to carry it because we can't and be with him in that place and find out whatever it is that he wants us to know about him, which for me is going to be different than for you, than for you, than for you, than for you. Because he loves us so individually and here, the, the purpose of suffering is to know God, that I might know him, Paul says, right? And the power of his resurrection. I mean, you can't make sense of this kind of stuff this is Picasso's Guernica. I, I I taught with this, I don't know, a year or two ago, something like that. Um uh Picasso was a Spanish painter and um Guernica was a small town um in like north central Spain. And 1939, the Nazis and the Italians um had just formed a uh, uh an alliance and they needed to they needed they they needed to find out how much firepower it took to carpet bomb and completely destroy a city, and so they just randomly picked Guernica, and they sent a bunch of warplanes in, and they completely destroyed and leveled the entire city. Now, tell their family members how to make sense of that. Go, go, t- go, go to them and say, "This is so that somebody else can come to know God." I mean, how do you do that? I don't think you do. I, I think you don't even step toward that. I mean, how do you take the depth of pain and loss and feeling that we have in the midst of our situations and, and and try and speak some kind of like spiritually rational concept to it? There might be a spiritually rational concept to it. There might not. But if that doesn't come from God, then it's useless. And oftentimes shame-inducing. Because I didn't care if anybody else came to Christ through my daughter's disease, Right? So now what I, I'm a bad Christian now on top of it. Who doesn't care about the gospel or people going to hell? But I do. But not like that. I think. right? And here it is, 12 years later, and I'm still up here questioning as I speak to you, like, huh, that's weird, right? How do we do that with Guernica? I just love this painting because I feel like it expresses such, like, the chaos that comes. The way that Picasso can pull apart a, a whole being like a whole person, and take its nuances out he does it all for a reason like if you're looking at a if you're looking at a Picasso and the person's eye is huge and you know the rest of the left half of their body is really small and minimal there's a reason why behind that we well, might not know why or figure out why, but it, what he does he does for a reason so like up in the uh, uh on the top left there like is that a bomb or is that an eye or is that a light bulb you know like is it really dark, and then, like, because they, they started in the dark, just before dawn, um, when the city, you know, there's, like, a factory back there to the left, and there's all this, even the horses in there, you know, even the animal suffering, in, it just, it, it, it's, it wrecks everything, you know, like, it wrecks everything, and there's men, and women, and children, and livestock, it was a farming community, you know, and, and it just so brings the chaos that we feel in the midst of pain out. Suffering is not a way to serve others. The purpose of suffering is to know and experience God. The purpose of suffering is to know and experience God. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So now to go back to this, what I told you I was going to get to. The way of knowing God comes by faith. The way of knowing God comes by faith. And this is where the rubber really does meet the road. As a person going through an experience that we didn't want and didn't ask for. Which is that we are called to walk in knowing God and experiencing God by faith. Faith is the what? The substance of things hoped for folks your faith is a substantive thing we tend to think of faith as sort of like this ethereal pie in the sky concept no faith is substantive faith is is real it is the substance of things that are hoped for so while it is real it is unseen so we step into suffering And we step toward suffering, believing that God is God in the midst of that suffering. And we bring all of our emotion, we bring all of our chaos, we bring all of our hurt, all of the things that we want rationally explained, everything to Him. And by faith, believe that what He gives us in that spot is what we need. What He gives us in that spot is what we need. It's one of really it's one of the most amazing things, and I, I can ex- think about this um, from a personal standpoint. And also, I, I, remember, I remember one time like um, uh, Christy was in the hospital for like three weeks, and it was the third week, and I had to pay the bills. I, like that was just like a thing. I had to pay the bills. Something else was, oh I think the car needed to be inspected too. And so in the midst of like this like Three weeks, hospital room closing in, lots of pain in the situation. Sherry was, it was her shift. I went home and what did I do? I paid the bills and I put Trey in the car and I took him to get the car inspected. Why? Because that's what needed to happen, right? Like, we, we, I, I, think that we think of suffering as just this completely, massively, all-encompassing things. I remember paying the bills. I, I don't know why. I just remember paying the bills and thinking to myself, I thought that it would feel different than this. Like, I thought that, like, I wouldn't be paying bills. You know, that my life would be so consumed by, there's still this natural life that still happens in the meantime. I still put one foot in front of the other. You know? Like, I still get up in the morning. I, 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 I still, I still walk. Right I still walk this thing out, I still take care of my kids, I still love my wife, I still engage this situation like it's all of this pain and everything comes, and yes, life is definitely changing at the same time. God is in and amongst all of the things in my life that don't change, and so on one level, everything is changing, and everything's up for grabs, and this is completely new, and at the same time, I'm still a dude who goes to work and who gets up and takes care of his family and tries to walk this thing out. There's words for that in the scriptures. They're called new mercies. Right? So are you going through hell? Absolutely. Yep. Today is a day of hell for you. And you're doing it. Right? You're walking. You are putting one foot in front of the other. You chose to come to be with the corporate people of God today, even though the rest of your voice said no. The rest of the voice around you said no. Right? which today was probably a good decision for you, and next week might not be. I don't know. I'm not judging you here. I'm just saying you're here, and then you're going to go home, and you're going to do something this afternoon. You know, and you're going to walk this, and you're going to keep putting one foot in front of it, and you're going to do the same thing spiritually. You're going to come to God with this, and you're going to be with God in it. And this is where I am today, and this is horrible. And tomorrow it might not be so bad. And three weeks from now, it might be the worst that it's ever been. So how we walk in and through it is, These are new mercies. God has grace for you for today. How do you walk through suffering? You do so with an eye that the purpose of this is for me to know God. And the way I'm going to know God is I'm going to know him today. I'm going to know him today. And I have mercies for today. And sometimes it feels like I am not going to make it. But I do. Why? Because I have him and his mercies are new today and they will carry me and they will carry me tomorrow and they will carry him the next day. And I can't see tomorrow and I can't see the next day. But the same God that sustained me 12 years ago is the same God that is sustaining me today who is the same God who will be sustaining me. And I can tell you that this, the way that I interacted with him 12 years ago is nothing compared to what it is that I've experienced him to be today. And in that 12 years, I did everything I could to try and break apart every good thing he ever gave me. And he's still stuck with me. And he'll stick with you too. I don't say that because of my experience being shifted on your experience. I say that because we live by faith and this is what we know him to be. But we do need to shake off the shame. We do need to shake off the cliches, the words, the things that are false and let suffering stand as suffering which is a bunch of questions that generally don't have answers that drive us to the presence of God, where we find out just more uh, and more deeply who he is and what we actually need there. Because what we go to God to say is, God, take this away. And what God says is, but I am here with you no matter what. And so if you walk through it, walk through it with me. I am with you even though you walk through the darkest valley of the shadow of death you don't need to be afraid why because you get your answers questions to your an- answers to your questions because you figure it out because time heals all wounds no the valley of the shadow of death i will not fear because you are with me right i mean he knows he understands He truly can be with you in every depth of emotion that you feel, in every experience that you have. Because here's the thing about Jesus' suffering, is that it was to serve, right? So where our suffering is to know him, his suffering was to redeem us. And so we again invite the people of God together back to this place, back to this king, back to this one who suffered for us that we might walk through suffering with him and truly know him. A path that is walked by faith because to bring it now full, full circle, the suffering of Jesus was to serve others. The suffering of Jesus did not stop with the suffering, right? What came next? The resurrection, which is exactly what God has in store for you. What does Paul say? That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformed to his death so that I might attain the resurrection of the dead, right? You are called to that same thing. Your suffering is not for nothing. Your suffering is actually for life. It's, it's for more life. And yes, you carry a cross. Yes, sometimes you are called to die upon that cross. The pain is deep. The loss, the grief, the hurt, the blocked goals, all of it. Very, very, very felt. Right? These, this stuff brings us as close to death as we ever get. And sometimes right through it. But what does God always have in store for his children? He has the same thing in store for us that he had in store for his son which is resurrection, which is new life in Christ. That is his heart for you. His heart for you is exactly what he declared it to be when he was here. Life and life that is more abundant. Where the thief would steal, kill, and destroy, he wants you to live. There is resurrection. If you are hurting, if you are suffering, if you are walking in a place that you did not want, did not ask for, there is resurrection. You possess that resurrection how? By faith. By faith, which means you live today, today, with God, knowing God, today. And resurrection finds you. Let's pray. God, thank you for the life that you give us in Christ. We thank you for the beauty of your um, presence with us. Teach us, God, what it means to be people who walk through suffering with You, in You, seeking to know You. We bless You. We love You. We thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen.
1: This stuff's real. And I just wanted to come up here today and pound it home. There was a lot of questions I had. And I searched high and low. but not until I realized God was right there with me the whole time. He was there with my dad by his side in his final moments. There's a lot more I'd like to share, and I don't think today's the time to do that, but I just wanted you to know God is here with us. There's nothing more. He is here. This is a beautiful picture of how David um, spoke to our God. I cry out to God. Yes, I shout. Oh, that God would listen to me. When I was in deep trouble, I searched for the Lord. All night long I prayed with hands lifted toward heaven, but my soul was not comforted. I think of God and I moan, overwhelmed with longing for his help. You don't let me sleep. I'm too distressed even to pray. I think of the good old days, long since ended, when my nights were filled with joyful songs. I search my soul and I ponder the difference now. Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? In his unfailing, has his unfailing love gone forever? Have his promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he slammed the door on his compassion? And I said, This is my fate. The Most High has turned his hand against me. But then I recall all you have done. O oh Lord, I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. They are constantly in my thoughts. I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works. O oh God, Your ways are holy. Is there any God as mighty as you? God, thank you for your scripture. Thank you for the relationship that you had with your son David. That this is about the interplay of relationship between you and us. Amen.